Well, it is uh, a blessing to be back preaching this morning after uh, quite a break, a longer break than we are anticipating. I think most of you know by now we buried our, our preborn son a few weeks ago, Jedediah, and um, I found myself um, fairly absent-minded in, in grief. I think those of you who have grieved something or another, you find that it can be difficult to maintain focus uh, as, you, as you process that which has happened to you. And I would appreciate your prayers for our family and for me in particular, even as I preach this morning, as I find my mind still drifting as, as we think about Think about that. But uh, I preached Zechariah this morning really with, with joy. It, it is one of my favorite books of the Old Testament for sure. And one that gives me hope even in the midst of death and in the midst of, of grief. And I hope that you find joy in it and hope in it as well this morning as we look at Zechariah. So most of you know we've been working through uh, the Old Testament in a series we're calling uh, walk, uh, oh my goodness, see this is my drifting brain, walk through the Bible. Um, and we're doing one message on each book of the Old Testament, and this is the second to the last book, if you can believe it. So we are almost into the light of the New Testament. But I hope you're going to see why I love this book so much as we get into it this morning. And just to tell you a little bit about why that is, it's because there's no, in my opinion, no other Old Testament book that brings Jesus Christ into greater focus than Zechariah. It's as it were we're coming, we've been steeped in the, what some theologians have called of the Old Testament, Christ concealed. And, and we see Jesus in shadow forms and symbolism and, and very vaguely. And as we're coming to the second to the last prophet here, all of a sudden, Jesus be, starts to come into focus, into sharp relief as we come into this period of silence that's going to come upon the people of God before Jesus comes. But in these last days, God is speaking more and more clearly about the coming Messiah, who he is and what it will be like. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. I hope that you see Jesus this morning. So I'm praying two things as we begin. One, that you will see Christ more clearly than ever in the Old Testament as we study this book this morning. And second, that your trust in God's promises would become unwavering. That you would grow in your confidence that you would experience an unshakable trust and reliance and knowledge and belief that just as God sent Jesus the first time to deal with sin, that he will come the second to deliver us from all evil, to raise our bodies from the dust and to save our souls at last. And the reason I pray this for you is that Zechariah proclaims the return of the king. And his prophecies don't just deal with Jesus' first coming, but with his second coming as well. God's Old Testament people had to look and hope to the coming of the Messiah. And God's New Testament people need to do the same. 
And that's what we're going to do this morning. Well, as we come to Zechariah, God's people found themselves once again in days like we find ourselves today, in dark days, where there's few people, even among the the external people of God, that care much for morality, that care much for God's word. In the days of Zechariah, they were, they were derisively called the day of small things, the days of small things, where the temple remained in rubble and foreign overruler, foreign lords and kings were still ruling over them, imposing high taxation, authoritarian control. Again, there was little interest even internally in the community for religious or moral reform. I think in in many ways we could say this is almost exactly like it feels right now. I know I know I know many of you and I know we are longing for revival and we grieve the apathy we see even in the churches in our own homes. But Zechariah preaches hope and that's what I want you to hear this morning. We're going to see that everything is about to change. Everything is about to change. God promised to return to his people. He says, I'm coming back. And like I said, Zechariah, more than any other, proclaims the coming messianic kingdom. His message is the king is coming. And the Lord will return to establish his global rule and save his people. This is where we're going this morning. We're going to study this idea that everything is about to change in three parts. If you want to study the content of Zechariah or the the outline in greater detail, you can look at page 7. I've given you a summary of the book there. Uh, And it's a really amazing book. And I'm just going to give you the main message this morning and leave you to study the details on your, on your own time. Number one, God speaks into the darkness of our present situation. That's the first thing that we see. God speaks into the darkness of our present situation. Okay. In the Judean backwaters of the Persian Empire in 520 B.C., the kind of the, the back 40 of the empire, it's, it's the country... It's the wilderness, foreign overlordship and internal religious decay are the rules of the day. Zechariah opens with a reminder of the post-exilic community's present plight. We see this in chapter 1 with the setting of the stage. It appears that God has entirely abandoned his people. You know, people are saying, where is God? God delivered us from the Babylonians. He brought us back to the land. If God was real, if he was there, wouldn't he be saving us? And again, it was the day of small things. And God is going to return and we're going to see that. But guess what? You know what they needed to hear in their present darkness more than anything? 
You know what the first thing was before God could return? It was to repent. The opening line, the opening message we see in in chapter 1, verses 3 and 4 is, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you. Do not be like your fathers, to whom the former prophets cried out, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds, but they did not hear or pay attention to me declares the Lord. You know, the same reason that we find ourselves in our present darkness is because those who went before us abandoned the Lord. Pastors have abandoned the Lord. Whole denominations have abandoned the Lord. Countries and nations that once at least at a a surface or national level acknowledged Christ have abandoned the Lord. And if we want God to return, it begins with repentance. And it's the same for the post-exilic community. You know, they they are complaining about God not visiting them not saving them, but they're not complaining about their sins. They're not complaining about their moral failures or their lack of interest in the Lord. It's easy for us to do that too, isn't it? So God presents Israel then with an ultimatum. Okay, This is the deal. Do you want to see me? Do you want relief from your darkness? Do you want to bask in the glow of renewal and reform? Then return to me. I want you to think about your own situation. Do you want God to shine joy in your home again. Light and life in your heart. It begins with returning to God. Not half-heartedly, but wholeheartedly. Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you. Isn't it amazing that even as Jesus does come onto the scene and the kingdom does come, it's inaugurated. What does Jesus' message begin with? Repent, for the kingdom is at hand. And it's the same for us today. Christ's kingdom is, and we're waiting for its consummation. But if we want to enter that kingdom, it begins with repentance. If we want to experience God, as a church, it begins with repentance. So I'd encourage you to take some notes and think about what, what, it, what does that mean for you? Indeed, if you want the light of heavenly joy to fill your present darkness again. So everything is about to change. 
But if we want that change to be a good thing, it begins with repentance. Second thing we see in Zechariah is that God gives us tangible hope. He gives us tangible hope. God doesn't just come and give us the beat down or his people say, repent, you sinners. Don't be like your obstinate fathers. He also gives hope. Repentance does not lead to despair. As the world would have you think. The world characterizes God's people as those who just think about sin and are miserable. And that the idea of talking about sin thus brings depression and despair. But that's actually the gateway to hope and to life. And we see in Zechariah that God gives his people a tangible hope. Not just a hope, but a tangible, a concrete one. I'm going to explain what I mean by that. Very few people have the capacity to see what is unseen. Right? So, for example, let's say uh, an, an architectural or engineering firm is tasked to build a bridge, right? and then there's a budget for the bridge. Most people are not satisfied with just saying, we're going to put a bridge there, right? Especially if you're a taxpayer. You want to see, what does it look like? What's it going to be like? How's it going to benefit the community? And so they build models, like actual visible models that you can see to help you know what it's going to be like. And uh, God sent his prophets to do a very similar, similar thing, to give tangible illustrations and synax or use vivid imagery to illustrate what God is going to do. And in chapter 1, verse 7, all the way through chapter 8, we have just some amazing, tangible pictures that God gives to help his people get what he's going to do. One of the primary ways we're given some tangible images of hope is in chapters 1 to 6. We see we are given eight visions that are given in apocalyptic language. They're eight apocalyptic visions. Now, what do I mean by apocalyptic? We hear apocalyptic, and I think we think of zombies, maybe, or something, something like that, or something catastrophic. But the word apocalypse simply means revelation. And there was a genre, a type of writing in the Old Testament, particularly as we move towards the intertestamental period, the time between the Old and New Testament where this apocalyptic genre was used to express God's deliverance that is coming in a way that won't get your head cut off. Okay, so the apocalyptic genre was written for oppressed people to write about their hope of deliverance under the person who's oppressing them. And there's actually tons of literature like this. I've, I have a whole volume of literature on, in my library at home of Jewish apocalyptic literature. But some of that genre we actually find expressed as well in inspired scripture. And in Zechariah chapters 1 to 6, we get eight visions that, where Zechariah uses this apocalyptic literature to give tangible, concrete hope to God's people. And I don't have time to walk you through all of it, but I hope that's enough to at least help give you a clue of kind of what's going on. I do want to say one thing, though, 
these visions culminate in kind of an envelope structure. So there's eight. And right in the middle, uh, there is an, we have this image of Joshua, who is the current high priest, and Satan standing before the throne of God. It's one of the few places in the Old Testament where Satan is named. Also, what I find interesting is Joshua is the same, the spelling of Joshua is the same spelling for Jesus, for Yeshua. And Joshua, this high priest, is described as being a standing in filthy rags. And Satan is accusing Joshua of his sin. So, so Joshua is representing the people of Jerusalem, the people of God. And Satan is standing before the throne of God, accusing Joshua and that is the people for their sins. We read in Zechariah 3.1, Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan, for the Lord has chosen Jerusalem. Rebuke you. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem, rebuke you, excuse me. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire. So the full force of Satan's might before God is rallied against Joshua, the high priest. He stands before the throne asking for the damnation of God's people. But what happens? We see that the judge of all the earth rebukes Satan, for he has chosen Zion, and he will remove the iniquity of his people. And the tangible sign, this concrete sign of this forgiveness, and this election, in this vision, is Joshua exchanging his filthy garments for clean ones. He's given new clean garments and Joshua is going to be this tangible sign for the current post-exilic community of what God is going to do. And in verses 8 and 9, we read, Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. So Joshua standing there in the flesh before the present post-exilic community is for God's people a, a tangible sign of hope that the Messiah is coming that forgiveness will be given and that God will return to his people. So we've seen so far, we have seen that God speaks into the present darkness and that he gives us a tangible hope. And now three, that God shows how he will return to us in Christ. That's the third thing we see in Zechariah. 
God shows how he will return to us in Christ. And here we're going to focus on the second half of Zechariah and quickly move through it. If you look just in brief at your, the overview of the book of Zechariah on page 7, you'll see that there's two main parts to the book. Chapters 1 to 8 deal with encouragements for the present post-exilic community. So these were things written while the temple was still uh, unfinished and God's people were in the day of small things. But then chapters 9 to 14 reflect a later time in Zechariah's writing where he focuses on the future messianic kingdom. And it's one of my absolute favorite parts of the Old Testament. And I hope you see why. That's my aim to show you why. So this third point is going to quickly cover the big idea of the second half of Zechariah, chapters 9 to 14. The New Testament makes it crystal clear that Zechariah is ultimately writing about Jesus Christ. Zechariah's ultimate message is not something that's going to be fulfilled in the post-exilic days, but through the coming of Christ. And in fact, what we see here, and more than that, is that it is not just a man who's going to be the Messiah. It's going to be God himself, the God-man. What the Lord, what Yahweh promises to do in returning to his people in Zechariah is going to be fulfilled by the God-man, Jesus Christ, coming to do in his first coming, as well as his second coming. And that's what we will see this morning. Did you know that over 50 passages in Zechariah, it's only 14 chapters, but over 50 passages in Zechariah are echoed in the New Testament over 60 times. So over 50 passages in Zechariah echoed in the New Testament over 60 times. For such a small minor prophet book, it's, that's a huge ratio of coverage in the New Testament. Many of the most amazing citations in the Gospels comes from Zechariah. And that's what I want to show you this morning as we walk through this in this final point. I want to get this point across by showing you seven key texts in this second half of Zechariah that show that God's return will be through Jesus Christ. And this is where this Old Testament book gets sharp, where, the, where Jesus starts to come into sharp relief because we're going to see how God is going to return in Christ. And the gospel writers pick up on this and are showing us through citations or allusions how Zechariah's message is fulfilled in Jesus. So let's look at these in brief. Seven points. Number one, Christ will be humble and mounted on a donkey. Christ will be humble and mounted on a donkey. And in Zechariah 9, 9, we read, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. 
And the gospel writers cite Zechariah 9.9 to show its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. In the gospel of Matthew, chapter 21, verses 1 and following, we read, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. John likewise gives a similar citation to Zechariah in John 12. So the first thing we see, the way God will return to us, to his people, is that Christ will be humble and mounted on a donkey. By the way, when I say Christ, that's just another word for Messiah. Okay, so the Hebrew word for the anointed one is Messiah. The Greek word for the anointed one is Christ. So if you've, I'm not sure if you've ever learned that before. But that's, so when I say Christ, we're talking about the Messiah, the King that is coming. Number two, Christ will be the cornerstone from Judah. Christ will be the cornerstone from Judah. And in Zechariah uh, chapter 10, verses 3 and 4, we read, My anger is hot against the shepherds, and I will punish the leaders. For the Lord of hosts cares for his flock, the house of Judah, and will make them like his majestic steed in battle. From him shall come the cornerstone, from him the tent peg, from him the battle bow, from him every ruler, all of them together. And of course, for someone in the post-exilic community, this idea of the cornerstone would ring true in their minds. Both Psalm 118 as well as Isaiah 22 speak about the Messiah as the cornerstone. And this cornerstone will come from Judah. And the gospel writers pick up on this. In Matthew 21, verses 42 to 43, Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures that the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And there Jesus is citing Isaiah, but picking up again on this messianic theme of the cornerstone that's alluded to as well in Zechariah. We see similarly in Ephesians 2, 19 and 20. So then you are are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Jesus is the cornerstone that holds up the people of God. And Zechariah tells us that this Christ is going to come from Judah. So we've seen that Christ will be humble and mounted on a donkey, 
Secondly, we've seen that Christ will be the cornerstone from Judah. Third, we see in Zechariah that Christ will be paid off for 30 pieces of silver. Christ will be paid off for 30 pieces of silver. In Zechariah 11, verse 12 and 13, we see, Then I said to them, If it seems good to you, give me my wages, but if not, keep them. And they weighed out as my wages 30 pieces of silver. Then the Lord said to me, Throw it to the potter, the lordly price at which I was priced by them. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. Uh, I'm not, it's probably not uh, obvious, but when the Lord says the lordly price at which I was priced by them, the context here is of the shepherd being rejected, of God being rejected, and of saying, well, give me my wages. And they give him 30 pieces of silver, which was a slave's wages. So that idea of the lordly price, that's, that's irony being spoken. The lordly price being the slave wages that the people of Israel thought Yahweh was worth. And this is picked up by the gospel writers as well. Matthew 26, verses 14 to 16. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him thirty pieces of silver. And from that moment he sought an opportunity to betray him. In Matthew 27, we see this betrayal completed 27 verse 3 and following. Then when Judas his betrayer saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and hanged himself. But the chief priest, taking the pieces of silver, said it is not lawful to put them into the treasury since it is blood money. So they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took thirty pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel. And they gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. And here we see a citation both of Jeremiah and of Zechariah. And is the gospel writer's habit If they cite multiple prophets at once, they cite the major prophet as well. So Zechariah and Jeremiah are cited here. That's why Matthew says, uh, comments on what was said by Jeremiah. But again, here we see what was prophesied before in Zechariah, that the Lord would be bought for the slave wages of 30 pieces of silver would come to pass in the betrayal of Jesus. So the people of Israel in the post-exilic community betrayed Yahweh symbolically in this image and, uh, of, of them rejecting the shepherd for 30 pieces of silver. But that ultimate betrayal will come in the betrayal 
of Christ. That's what's going to happen to this Messiah. So Christ will be humble and mounted on a donkey. Christ will be the cornerstone from Judah. Christ will be paid off for 30 pieces of silver. Number four, we learn in Zechariah that Christ will be pierced for our sins. The Lord is speaking in Zechariah 12.10, And I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, this is the Lord speaking, when they look on me, on him who they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. And in Zechariah 13, 1, On that day there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. John picks up on this in chapter 19, verse 37. When, as we read in our scripture reading this morning, since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other, who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear. And at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, and this is where he cites Zechariah 12.10, they will look on him whom they have pierced. You see how Jesus is coming into sharp relief, clear focus in Zechariah as he moved to the final days of the prophetic word in the Old Testament. Let's look at number five. Christ will be struck and his disciples will be scattered. Christ will be struck and his disciples will be scattered. As we move to the next chapter in Zechariah, chapter 13, verse 7, we read, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me. This now is God's good shepherd, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. And Matthew picks up on this. Remember the Garden of Gethsemane? And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. And then just a few verses later, we read, At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. 
Then all the disciples left him and fled. So when we read in chapter 13, we read of the garden scene. We read of what would ultimately be fulfilled in Gethsemane. Number six, the way God will return to his people in Christ. Number six, Christ will stand on the Mount of Olives. In chapter 14, verse 4, the last chapter in Zechariah, we read, on, Speaking of the day of the Lord, On that day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem. And as Jesus is coming to Jerusalem to do his final work, where does he come from? The Mount of Olives. This also harkens back, if you remember, to Ezekiel, where there's the picture of the glory of the Lord leaving the temple, and it leaves over the Mount of Olives. And now, that glory is not done with God's people. It's going to come back the same way it left. And on the Mount of Olives, Yahweh stood in the flesh in Jesus Christ to enter Jerusalem to do what only he could do. And it's written about beforehand here in Zechariah. Christ will stand on the Mount of Olives. Number seven, then, also from chapter 14, we see in Zechariah 14, 8, and 9, that Christ will give us living water as the king of all the earth. Christ will give us living water as the king of all the earth. Zechariah says, On that day living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter. That means no more droughts. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. Remember when Jesus talked to the Samaritan woman by the well? Remember that? In John 4, and Jesus answered the woman, If you knew the gift of God and who it is, it's Yahweh, right? If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink. You would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. In Revelation 22.1, we read, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And of course, in Revelation 19.16, we read of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. I want to conclude by just reminding us that everything is about to change. The king of all the earth is coming. He came and he's coming again, friends. One of the things that makes studying the prophets challenging is that they will often speak of the day of the Lord as like one day. You read it like it's going to happen in one I think that's why the apostles were so confused. Lord, is this now the time when you're going to bring about the kingdom, restore the kingdom to Israel? You know, they're even asking that right before Jesus sends the apostles out to go into Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. So 
You know, I feel like we're given a little grace then if it's hard for us to understand the prophets too. But what we, what we come to understand in Christ is that the day of the Lord becomes an age, a period of time in which in Jesus' first coming, they look on him who they pierced, right? The fountain was opened. He did come humble and mounted, riding on a donkey. But in his second coming, He is going to deal with our enemies. And the other things that Zechariah talks about, him being visibly king of all the earth, of his kingdom being consummated in fullness before our eyes, that's stuff that's yet to come. Right? That's yet to come. That's why we have apocalyptic literature in the New Testament too. Right? And what do we read at the end of Revelation? He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. This day will be finished. When Jesus comes again, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. In Zechariah, we see Christ coming in a sharp focus. It's all about the return of the King. Jesus is coming into sharp relief. And I want to end where we began. The knowledge that Jesus is coming should lead each of us first and foremost to repentance. It should lead us to repentance. Take stock of your life. And are you ready? If Jesus decides to come today, are you squared with God? through faith in Jesus. So repent. But I also want to leave you, which I think is the the final aim of Zechariah. I want you to rejoice as well, because your king's coming. All the sin and misery that we all deal with, from the death of family members to hostility in the workplace, will come to an end in the new life that we will have in the new creation. All the sins and miseries that have been wrought on the earth will be gone when our King returns. So don't just repent, but also rejoice for your King is coming. Let's pray.